If you please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 25 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 586. So we're coming now to the end of this uh, long section that we've been looking at always since uh, chapter 13. This is the, the section of judgments. We've seen judgments on all the different nations, both nations that knew God and, and nations that did not know God. And chapter 24 ends this section declaring the judgment on the whole earth. This judgment is where none escape, where, where none are immune. It falls on all nations, it falls on all stations in society, all professions. And this universal judgment here is seen in two parts. The first is seen in God's curse on the creation, really due to the fall, due to man's rebellion against God. And this judgment affects all, both the just and the unjust, both, both the saved and the lost. The second judgment is the final judgment. This comes when Christ returns. This is a horrible, this is an eternal judgment. And this judgment does not fall on all, but only on those who stubbornly, who persistently, who decisively reject God's gracious offer of redemption and shelter in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 25, this is for those who escape the final judgment. This is for those of us who flee to Christ. This is for those of us who abide in Christ, who, who preserve and, and, and are pers- who persevere and, and preserved by Christ. And this shows us our reason for praise. This reason for praise for his glory, praise for his justice, praise for his mercy, praise for his grace. And this is given to us because of our union with Christ. So Isaiah chapter 25, hear now the word of the Lord. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his peoples he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down into a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skills of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls will he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, cast to the dust. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you. 
We praise you for the marvelous things you have done. We praise you for the grace you have given us, the mercy you have shown us. We also praise you for your justice. We praise you for your holiness. We praise you for who you are. And Heavenly Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we will hear from you this morning. Lord, I pray that you will anoint my words, that they will be your words. I will speak only your truth. And Father, I pray that you will open every single one of us, our ears to hear from you, that we will have an encounter with you, that we will see you, and then every single one of us will be changed. Every single one of us will be changed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, each one of us is beaten down. Each one of us is tired. Each one of us struggles in this fallen world. Life in this fallen world is difficult. It's sorrowful. It's frustrating. And we have all kinds of problems. We have economic worries. We have health concerns. We have relational conflicts. We have sadness. We have anxiety. We have depression. And as your pastor, I know many of the things that you are struggling with at this very moment. I know the difficulties that you bear at this moment. But there are, I know also there are many, many things that I don't know, many things that you battle with alone. And just as we heard in our prayer request, I mean, just listen to these prayer requests, the, the health concerns that we have, suicidal thoughts that we have. Just look at the news. There is much sadness. There is much brokenness in this world. And even if things are going relatively well for you at this moment, there's always that fear. There's always that fear of the, of the sudden tragedy. Suddenly everything changes. Or maybe there's just this general level of malaise. I, I think many of us feel this, uh, that, that things are just not right. And the truth is, things are not right. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is not the way God wants it to be. Not the way that it will ultimately would be. See, this world is not our home. And it's normal and appropriate, although it is very painful, but it's normal and appropriate for us to recognize and to acknowledge that fact that this world is not our home. My friend, God is active in this fallen world. He is working in this fallen world. He is working to bring the lost to himself. He is working to bring all things together for his glory and for our good, the eternal good of his people. In this chapter that we're looking at, this is a reminder to us of what God has done. It's a reminder of what God is doing. And it's a reminder of the promises of what he will do in the future. And this chapter gives us a reason to praise. Praise even in the midst of the pains, even in the midst of the sorrows that we suffer in this fallen world. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through this chapter verse by verse, and we're going to see what God is doing, and how we're going to, we're going to allow it to, to draw us in along with Isaiah to be a time of praise, to praise God for the things he sees doing. So let's start right up at verse 1. Isaiah starts this chapter with praise. He says, O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. See, when we look at the, the wonderful things that God has done, when we see his plans, plans that were, were, were formed before the foundation of the world, plans that are faithful, plans that are in accordance with his holy and eternal character, plans that are guaranteed, more sure than the sun will continue shining, more sure that we will, than we will take our next breath. And when we see all these things, we cannot help but burst into spontaneous praise. Just as we see Isaiah do. That is the natural reaction of our heart when we see God's, what he's doing. Verses 2 and 3 list the first of these wonderful things that Isaiah praises. Now, first, this may seem like something that we would not praise. You say, why would he praise this? This seems, this seems to be more judgment. 
Take a look at verses 2 and 3. It says, For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. So why does Isaiah praise God for the destruction of the city? Doesn't he follow our our modern church planting philosophy that the church is to be for the city? We are to be a blessing to the city. We are to love the city, seek to see the city prosper. Well, this verse is here is a reference to chapter 24. It's the judgment we see in chapter 24 where God scatters the inhabitants of the city. And this word scatters, it's the same word that's used in Genesis. It's an allusion to to God's scattering of the people when they built the Tower of Babel. And you remember the reason for the scattering of the people at Babel? It's because they sought to build this tower all the way up to heaven. They sought to reach God on their own. They sought by their own power to, to reach God. They sought to be God. They sought to be autonomous. And this attempt for man to be autonomous Uh, to be separate from God, to to be equal with God, this is the primary and basic sin of our race. This is our basic sin. We want to be God. This is the serpent's temptation to Adam and Eve. Right? If you eat this forbidden fruit, you will be like God. You will know good and evil. And the fall is the result of man's rebellion against God. It's the result of our desire to be God ourselves. And it's very important that we understand this point because this is the basis of all of our sins. At at, at the root of all of our sins is this uh, desire to be autonomous, desire to be separate from God, the desire to be God. This is the basis of all false religions. It's works righteousness. It's doing something to earn God's favor. Again, wanting to be our own God. And this is what the city represents in verse 2. The city is where fallen men place their trust. The city provides them their security. The city allows them to reject God and to trust in the work of their own hands. This is the city that God will make into a heap. This is the fortified city that will be a ruin. God will finally destroy all of our attempts at autonomy, all of our attempts to be God. And Isaiah here is praising God, and we also can praise God, Because he will finally and forever put an end to this root cause of sin, this primary sin of our race, this desiring to be our own God. In verse 3, God's power will be made known, and this will bring him glory. This will bring fear to those who reject God, those who rebel against God. They're called here the ruthless. God will put an end to the delusion, delusion that fallen, sinful, finite people can somehow be God. And the theme then is expanded upon in verses 4 and 5. Here Isaiah praises God for his mercy. He praises him for his compassion, his mercy and compassion on the weak, on the poor, and his judgment on the oppressors, his judgment on the the ruthless, those who reject God, those who rebel against him. Verses 4 and 5 say, For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. See, for his people, for God's suffering people, for the people in Myanmar, the people in North Korea, the people who are suffering, for his poor people, for the people who don't know how they're going to get their next provision, their next meal, 
for us during our difficulties that each one of us face in this fallen world. The Lord himself, the Lord is our stronghold. He is our shelter. And he protects us. He protects us from this distress. He protects us from the storm. He is our shade from the heat. And when we're united to Christ, united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, he then is our shelter. He is the shelter from the storms. He is the shelter from the trials and the dangers that we face in this fallen world. And although we are weak, he is our strength. Although we are poor, he is our riches. And for this amazing reality, we cannot do anything else but praise him. Conversely, the ruthless, those who oppose God, those who seek to destroy his people, they only cause distress. Their breath, it says, is like a storm against a wall where people, where there is no shelter. So there's no place to seek mercy in them, to seek help. They will only destroy. They're like a desert, uh, the desert heat that, that saps and, and drains the strength from the godly. But the Lord subdues them. The Lord subdues the noise of these foreigners, those who do not know God. Their power, their song, like heat blocked by, by the shade of a cloud, will be frustrated as the, the Lord protects his people from these ruthless people. Again, for Isaiah, this is a cause of praise, praising the Lord. And we too praise the Lord. See, we, we do not need to fear those who oppose us. The Lord is our stronghold. He is our fortress. He is our protector. And for this, we must praise him. In verse 6, we move from protection to provision. Not only is the Lord our protector against all the dangers in this evil and fallen world, he is the one who provides for us in this fallen world. Take a look at at verse 6. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. See, the mountain of the Lord this year is is a, a metaphor for the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a current reality for us now. We are in the current reality. But it is not. The kingdom of God is not fully consummated. It will only be fully consummated when Christ returns in the new heavens and the new earth. But the Lord gives us everything we need. Everything we need now and everything we need then to fulfill his will for us. To expand the kingdom of God. But this provision, again, is not just for now. This provision that we have now, this provision will be full, it will be complete in the new heavens and the new earth. See, now we may have a temporary shortage, but not then. Not then, in the new heavens and the earth, then our cups will overflow. We will have abundant provision. And it says the Lord of hosts will make it for all peoples, all peoples. This shows that the kingdom is not limited to a small group. It's not one people. It's not one ethnicity. It's not the people of Israel. The kingdom is open to all peoples, all tongues, all tribes, all peoples. Now the gospel go forth to all nations. We proclaim the gospel to all types of people. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every person is a sinner. Every person needs the gospel, and we proclaim the gospel to all people groups. And the Lord has infinite resources, and he's lavished these resources on his people. There's no fear of scarcity in the Lord. We don't have to worry about a recession. We don't have to worry about inflation. We don't have to worry about market crashes. He is our provision. We don't have to worry about losing our job. He provides for us. And for this we rejoice. For this we sing his praise. And look at the description of the food that he provides for his people. It says a rich, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, 
of rich food full of marrow, of, of aged wine, well refined. I mean, this is, this is big, juicy steaks. This is good stuff. This is the best of the best. This is well-aged wine. Remember, remember the, the, the wedding at Cana when Jesus turned the water into wine? Remember the steward's response? He says, you know, most people will, will serve the best wine first, but you saved the best wine. This was the best wine, the most delicious wine that he has ever tasted. And that's what the Lord has prepared for us. The most richest, the most delicious food, the best of the best. We then see a, another shift here in our reason to praise for praise in verses 7 and 8. And this one is a biggie. See, so far we've praised the Lord for the destruction of this original curse that separated from us, our, our desire to be God, our desire for autonomy. We praise him for his protection. We praise him for his shelter from our enemies and, and the dangers in this fallen world. And we praise him for his provision. He provides for us now in this fallen world and, and the promise of ultimate and, and complete satisfaction in the new heavens and the new earth. Next, we praise him for the deliverance of that ultimate and final enemy, death itself. Take a look at, at verses 7 and 8. He says, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. See, the covering that is cast over all people, the, the veil that is spread over all nations, this is the covering of the grave. This is the veil of death. This is the fate from which no one escapes. The destiny to which no one is immune. Death, my friends, is the great equalizer. Death is the fate of each one of us. And each life relentlessly marches toward death. Each day, getting one day closer to this ultimate end, to this ultimate terror. But this universal cover, this dark veil, is not a terror for the believer. For the believer who is united to Christ by faith, we have already died. We have died with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ. Therefore, death is no longer has any power over the one who is united to Christ. The power of death is broken. As we heard in our New Testament reading, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? As Paul goes on to explain in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin. See, sin is what led to death. Death was not God's original plan. We were created to live forever in perfect harmony with God. But in Adam, our race rebelled against God. We demanded to be autonomous. We demanded to be our own God. And it was this sin that caused this rupture in our relationship with really the only source of life, the living God. And it was this sin that led to spiritual and physical and eternal death. And the power of that sin was the law, God's perfect, holy, righteous law, a law that we would have been able to keep prior to the fall. But now, now we are powerless to keep this law. And as a consequence, we continue to perpetually break this law, minute by minute, second by second, racking up more and more sin, more and more guilt, and more and more judgment. But thanks be to God. And he alone is the one who deserves all the praise. Thanks be to God. God's perfect law 
has been completely and fully satisfied. Not in us, but in Christ. And if we are in Christ, that satisfaction has been applied personally to us. The power of sin has been broken in us in Christ. Similarly, the consequences of that sin, of breaking God's holy commands, the the just penalty and judgment that our sin deserves, eternal death in the torments of hell. This, too, has been satisfied by Christ. Those torments were suffered by Christ on the cross. That penalty was satisfied by Christ on the cross. And if you are united to Christ by faith, that satisfaction is applied to you. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And this is what we see in verse 8. This is the reason for praise, eternal and unceasing praise. It's because Christ has swallowed up death forever. For the Christian, death is never to be feared again. Christ has swallowed up death. For those of us in Christ, death can no longer hurt us. Its power has been neutralized. And for this, we must praise God. But as amazing as this reality is, it gets even better than that. Can you imagine? It gets even better than that. Not only is, is death swallowed up forever, but take a look at the next words in, in verse 8. It says, And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. See, the Lord will wipe away tears from the face of his people. And we see the same words, the same wiping away of tears. We see this in the book of Revelation. It's in actually two places in the book of Revelation. The first is in Revelation 7. Revelation 7 is a, a picture of the church triumphant. It's a church in heaven, in glory, after they leave this fallen world. And the second place is Revelation 21. That's when Christ returns. This is a picture of our eternal dwelling place in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's kind of odd. Why is God wiping away tears in heaven and tears in the new heaven? Both of these places are sinless. They are painless. They are tearless. They are places where we will dwell in the direct glory of the Lord. They are places of unimaginable peace, unimaginable joy. There's no way that we could shed a tear in this environment. Even if we wanted to, we could not be sad in this environment. So why is it saying it's wiping away tears? Well, the wiping away of the tears here is a reference not to tears shed in glory, but rather to the presence of the tears that are shed here on earth. This is a reference to the pain and the frustration and the sadness and the fear and the loneliness and all the other trials that we face now in this fallen world. And what this is saying is the Lord will wipe away every tear shed in this fallen world. In doing so, he will provide comfort, not just for the moment, not just for the future, but he will provide comfort that that works its way back into the past, that works its way back to the pain that we are now suffering. See, on that day, the Lord will give us his divine perspective on our current reality, what we are suffering right now. And we will see at that moment that the the light and momentary trials that we currently endure, we will see them in light of eternity. And we will understand how each sorrow, how each pain was actually preparing for us a weight of glory, a weight of glory to which the trials are not even worthy to be compared. As the rest of verse 8 proclaims, this reproach that that we now endure will be taken away. the, The pain that we now will be taken away from all the earth. It says the Lord has spoken. This is reality. 
And when by faith we trust these words that the Lord has spoken, we will then be able to see, we will be able to enjoy, we will be able to rejoice in this reality. The problem is we can't see it now. We're blinded by our current trials. But when the Lord gives that faith, we see, we see what he is doing. And we will be able to rejoice in this reality. And for this we praise him. And all of these reasons for praise that we discussed are the results of our union with Christ. See, they are the results of our salvation. And verse 9 just comes right out and praises God for our salvation. Look at verse 9. It says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And notice it says, We have waited for him. See, God is the one who takes the initiative. Salvation comes from him alone. God initiates salvation, not us. He does it in his time. We wait. And isn't this the hardest thing to do? To wait? Right? We don't like to wait. We want to do something. We want to be in control. And this all goes back to our primary sin. This autonomy. We're masters of our own fate. We take the initiative. We accomplish what we desire. We don't wait. We act. And what we're trying to do here is we're we're, we're attempting to force God's hand. And we can't do this. It will not work. We must wait for him. And he will act according to his plan in his time for his glory. But here's the key here. Waiting is not doing nothing. Waiting is active. Waiting is prayerful. Waiting is begging God for his grace. Begging God for his mind. Begging him for his spirit. Waiting is being obedient to the things that God has already revealed to us in his word and trusting for further illumination according to God's timeline, not ours. Waiting is utilizing the means of grace that he has given to us for both conversion and for sanctification. And these means of grace are what we are doing right now, worshiping, hearing the word preached, reading the word, studying it, prayer, fellowship. And what we do in this evening, celebrating the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. These are the things that we do while waiting for God's saving and sanctifying grace. So waiting is not doing nothing. And for this, we will rejoice. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And this is no small reason for praise. Now for the last three verses of this chapter, verses 10 through 12, the focus shifts. It shifts from God's people to those who reject him, to those who rely on their own skill and their own ability. And these types of people are represented here by Moab. Take a look at verses 10 through 12. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortification of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. And here what we're seeing is judgment. The hand of the Lord will rest against Moab in judgment. So why is this judgment against Moab? Moab wasn't the only ones to rebel against God. They weren't the only ones who didn't know the Lord. In fact, as we've seen through Isaiah, all the nations rebelled against the Lord. Even, even the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, God's own covenant people, rebelled against him. 
So why Moab? Well, this is speculation, but I think Moab represents those rejecting grace and receiving judgment for a specific reason. And this reason, I think, should be a sober warning to us, to those of us living in a, a somewhat Christian culture. See, Moab, out of all the nations, and maybe other than Edom, was the closest to God's covenant people. See, the Moabites, they were a descendant of Lot. This was Abraham's nephew. They had some knowledge of the Lord. They were giving a degree of illumination about Yahweh. They were given grace. As we looked at it a few weeks ago, God's judgment on, on Moab. They were offered grace. Israel's greatest king, King David, was a descendant of Ruth, who was a Moabitess. So King David had Moabite blood in him. David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, had Moabite blood. Jesus was both a Jewish Messiah and a Moabite Messiah by blood, by ethnicity. However, the Moabites rejected the grace that was given to them. They rejected the Hebrew God. They rejected what they knew of Yahweh, and they embraced the demonic Kamosh. And I believe Moab in these verses represent those who are offered grace through Jesus Christ, but explicitly reject that grace given to them. They close their eyes to the light that is given to them, and as a result, their foolish hearts are darkened. And for this, they receive judgment. And as I said, this is a particular solemn warning for those of us raised in a Christian culture, right? We have the light. We have the faithful gospel proclamation. There are countless Bible-believing churches. The gospel and the Bible teaching are accessible on the radio. They're accessible online. Bio, uh, biblical and Christian principles are found really throughout our history and our, uh, and our secular culture. Bibles are ubiquitous. Right? The Gideons make sure that a copy of Scripture is in every hotel room, in every hospital and doctor's office in this country. We have no excuse to reject the light. It is all around us. And what does Isaiah say is the fate of those who reject the, the grace offered to them, of those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? It says they'll be trampled down. What this means is they'll be destroyed. But it's not just destroyed. They're also humiliated in their destruction. It says their trampling down is compared to straw trampled down into a dunghill. This is humiliation. See, those who spurn God's grace in wicked rebellion and, and evil practices, they will both utterly be destroyed and utterly humiliated. Now, in case you're thinking... Well, God's being overly harsh on these people. Remember that the Moabites, they, they sacrificed babies to Kamosh. Utter, this utterly evil must be punished. Just as our culture, as well, sacrifices babies on the altar of self-autonomy. My body, my choice is our mantra that we say. And notice even the way they resist God's judgment speaks to the wickedness of their hearts. They're not repenting. They're not seeking God's mercy. They're not seeking God's forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness that he promises in his word. If they just repent, if they just turn to him, they would be forgiven. But they don't repent. What do they do? They trust in themselves. This is the same autonomy, the same, I don't need God, I'm my own God. The same works righteousness that characterized fallen man's attitude towards God. We see this in verse 11. Moab here is compared to a swimmer, spreading out his hands, seeking to resist God's judgment. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride and the skill of his hands, bringing down the high fortifications of his walls. 
that they trust in, casting them to the ground in the dust. Again, another image of humiliation, having their faces ground in the dust. And you may be thinking, why is this a reason for praise? Shouldn't we mourn those represented by Moab? Shouldn't we mourn this judgment? Shouldn't we be sad, lament, seeing this horrible destruction, seeing this humiliation? Well, the answer is a little complicated. Yes, we are to mourn. Yes, we are to have compassion on the lost, even on the wicked. I mean, Jesus himself says we are to love our enemies. But this love and compassion must never lead us to reject God's righteous declaration about the evil of sin. He said it again. This is a love and compassion that we have on the lost. Must never lead us to reject God's righteous declaration about evil and sin. We must never express our love and compassion for the lost by condoning their sin. My friends, this is so tempting to do. We want to do this. We want to provide comfort. We want to provide relief. It's so easy to say, no, that's not really sinful. God's okay with it. This is what our culture does all the time. But no, this this compassion that we must have, this compassion, compassion that we're commanded to have, must always be motivated to seek the repentance of the lost. Right? We don't want to see them judge. We, we want to see them saved. But the only way they can be saved is to recognize their sin, acknowledge their sin, and repent of their sin, and in faith receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. This is the only way. This is the most loving thing we can do. But here's the, the most difficult part of loving our enemies and loving the lost. Oftentimes, this love will be received not as love, but as hatred. It'll be seen by our culture as being hateful. And why? Because we don't condone the sin. But rather, we identify, we, we call sin, sin. And we plead, we plead with the sinner to repent of the sin, to fall upon Christ for salvation. This is, this is going to be our temptation. This is, this is going to be what is going to be said. We're going to be called judgmental. We're going to be called hateful. And when we do this, we will get discouraged. You will be discouraged. You will be, if, if you attempt to truly love someone, you will definitely be discouraged. But remember, remember God is the one who determines if our actions are loving. Not our society, not even the person that we are loving. It is all God. We must do what is right in his eyes. And if a person fails to repent and continues in blasphemous rebellion against God and persists in in their evil practices, they will face God's justice. They will face righteous, holy, and eternal justice, which means an eternity in hell separated from God. And here's the thing that, that may be surprising. This may be surprising what I'm going to say next. Even this, Even God's justice, even this condemnation in hell is a reason for praise. We don't want to see it. We pray for repentance. But even this is a reason for praise. We praise God's justice. See, we praise God that we live in a universe that is just. See, oftentimes we're frustrated in this life, are we not? With the injustice that is all around us. We get frustrated when evil preys upon innocent and gets away with it and is not is not punished. 
I mean, think about those people who, who are searching for every last Nazi guard in concentration camps. I just heard a few years ago, a man who was in his late 90s, who was a guard, they found him and they tried him and they sentenced this man in his 90s because that's how much we want to see justice for the evil that was done 70 years ago. We want to see justice. We get frustrated. But my friends, there will be a day. There will be a day of reckoning. A day when every wrong is made right. A day when every evil committed will be perfectly punished to the exact extent that God's justice requires. And we can praise God for this. And that perfect punishment, perfect punishment that that every one of us deserves, every one of our sins deserves, this perfect punishment takes place in only one of two ways. Only one of two ways it can take place. For the Christian, for the person who is united to Christ, This punishment takes place on the cross where we are crucified with Christ. But for the person who persists in their rebellion against God, these punishments will be paid by that person personally, individually, in the eternal torments of hell. But my friends, now is the time of grace. And if there are any here, any here who do not belong to Christ, any listening on the live stream, any listening to the sermon audio years from now, if you are not united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that can change at this very moment. Call upon him. That's all scripture says. Call upon the name of the Lord. Scripture promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And for this reason, for this reason, we can praise him. We can praise him now and we will praise him for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you. We praise you for the, for the attributes of you that we have seen in this chapter. And there are so many more. There are countless more. And Father, I pray for every single one here. I pray if there are any here who do not know you, Lord, that you will change that right now. You will open their eyes to see your grace, to see your glory, to see your mercy, to see your love and forgiveness that is offered to them. And they will receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But for those of us who know you, often our faith grows cold. Often we, get, often we get comfortable with these truths that we've heard so many times. Lord, allow us to experience them afresh. Allow us to see exactly who you are, the glory of who you are, of what we deserve, of what you have done, what you have endured for us, and give you the praise. Lord, change our hearts so that we be constantly and always praising you. That is what we are going to be doing for all eternity. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.